I don't have any recollection of any student, black or white, applying to the University of Virginia. And to me, that was shocking. And I realized eventually it was out there. They knew it was there, but they didn't know it firsthand. UVA might uh, might as well have been Harvard. You know, people just didn't think of it as a place that they could go to or apply to. Hello and welcome to A Pixie from Kilmarnock, a program about the people, places, and the history of the Northern Neck of Virginia. I'm your host, Pixie E. Curry. Another change in the wind during newly integrated 1971 Northumberland County was welcoming more aspects in rural education to people who were instrumental in guiding and shaping the future were now faced with integrating progressive thoughts and ideas, perspectives that were centuries old and not inclusive. The wind of change brought a gentle ripple on the still waters that surrounded us our junior year at Northumberland Senior High School. My cousin Odell Scott, who was also one of my best friends, and I had different English teachers. If by chance we would sit with each other on the bus for the long 30-mile drive, conversation would turn to what book had been assigned, and we talked about the characters as if they were people we knew as friends. I had Mr. Jett for my junior year, and Mrs. Scott for my senior year. Mr. Jett was teaching from the standard literature book. I mean, you can't go wrong with Washington Irving, Nathaniel Hawthorne, or Edgar Allan Poe. Mrs. Scott played the LP, Jesus Christ Superstar, as part of her lesson. Odell shared Gordon Parks' The Learning Tree, John Knowles' A Separate Piece, and used in his class the newly hired Mr. DePriest, Alfred Toffler's Future Shop. I interviewed Thomas DePriest, former teacher of English in the Commonwealth's public school system, particularly Northumberland County and a former lawyer for the Department of Energy in January of 2022. I get to call Mr. DePriest Tom now because he wasn't that much older than us when he was our teacher. Excuse the construction noise and static you hear. Tom lives in Northern Virginia where loud noise is a given. This is part one. My name is Thomas DePriest, and I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was an only child. My father owned and operated a service station, and my mother had begun her professional life as a high school biology teacher, but by the time I got to high school, she had become the first full-time guidance counselor at the high school that I attended. You know, I went to a small southern town, so... It was just the the high school. Um, And uh, let's see, when I got to, uh, well, from my hometown, I went through the public schools there, and then I went to Duke University and graduated with a degree in English and um, had planned to go on to graduate school. 
but I graduated in 1968, and the Vietnam War was going on, and in order to avoid being drafted, I had to get a teaching job. So I taught middle school, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade for three years in Connecticut, and uh, it was an upper-middle-class, very affluent uh, suburb, suburban community from, of New York, and uh, I taught there. And uh, by that time, I was. I did, I looked around. There were other teachers there, and younger single teachers. And I realized I could spend the rest of my life there. I mean, it was a very the the, the salaries were good. The students were were for the most part good students. And but I didn't want to do that. And so when I came to Northumberland, uh, the idea was which came to fruition is that I would uh, live in Virginia and teach and establish residency and then apply to the University of Virginia Law School as an in-state resident, which meant tuition was lower uh, than it would be. And also, uh, uh, I knew that I would be uh, in a better, uh, more advantageous position to get admitted to law school because I had gone to a good out-of-state school and, you know, they don't want to fill up the University of Virginia Law School with University of Virginia graduates. A lot of people make the mistake of going to the University of Virginia undergraduate thinking it'll help them get into the law school. And it doesn't really work that way because they, they want a more diverse student body. So uh, that's why I came to Heathsville in Virginia, and that's why I only stayed two years because then I uh, the my second year of teaching, I applied to law school and was accepted. And then the summer of 1973, I moved to Charlottesville to attend law school. And then after finishing law school, I got a job with the Department of Energy. I worked at the headquarters in Washington, D.C. my whole uh, legal career. And I'm currently retired and enjoying every minute of it. What year were you born? Oh, 1946. I'm 75 currently. I will be uh, 76 in March. You just told me what led you to the Northern Neck was so that you would be able to take courses at uh, law courses at the University of Virginia. Right, right. Okay, I understood that correctly. What classes did you teach during those two years? Um, It was all 11th and 12th grade English. And what year did you come to Northumberland? My first year, um, I moved there in the summer of 1971, late at the end of the summer, and uh, then uh, I taught there 71-72 school year and the 72-73 school year. How did you hear about Northumberland? Okay, try to keep this as short as possible. I had decided, as I said, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina, and my family didn't really travel. I wanted to go to Europe. The summer before I started teaching in Northumberland, I signed up for a charter flight that would give me six weeks in the UK. I was an English teacher, so I and had, had read you know English literature in college and so forth. I, uh, I went to the UK for, well, I said six weeks, five and a half weeks, and then the charter flight returned. I had to go over to Amsterdam to fly home. Anyway, this whole thing that I told you earlier about the 
deciding that I wanted to go to law school, to the University of Virginia Law School, I had already decided to take this trip. I knew that I, I would have to come back and find a job in Virginia if I could. So I had applied to some teacher agencies and gave them my parents' home address in North Carolina and phone number. And the superintendent in Northumberland County called my mother while I was out of the country and talked to her. And uh, she and I had talked, and so she knew what I was doing and why I was doing it. And so she explained that I was gone and was unreachable for the summer. This was, of course, many years ago before anybody even thought of having cell phones. So I sent them postcard every day, but that was the only contact we had while I was gone on my, on my trip. So he basically held the position open until I got back from my trip. And the day after I got back, I was living in Connecticut. She called me and explained all of this and gave me the contact information. Oh, three, three or four days later, I got up in the morning in Connecticut, got in my car and drove to the Northern Neck, interviewed with the superintendent. Then he sent me over to the high school to interview with Mr. Eads, the principal. And uh, then I went back uh, to the superintendent's office and signed a contract to work. And uh, then we talked about where I could live. And he told me that there was a cottage over outside of Calio that had sometimes been rented to teach a furnished cottage. I went over to look at that, and the landlord wasn't there at the property, but there was another rental property, a house nearby. I talked to that person, and then I think he and the superintendent both talked to the landlord. So the landlord rented me the cottage without, you know, meeting me. And then uh, in the meantime, I got back in the car and drove back to Connecticut the same day. A lot of driving. I was exhausted. And then uh, that was like, I don't know, I'm say a Thursday or a Friday, and I spent the weekend packing up and packing my car, and the following week I drove down and started working. It was all very quick. Sounds like. So <laughs> Mr. Eves at that time was the principal for North right, Dublin. Right, uh, That meant that Mr. Durham had just left or retired. Okay, yeah, uh, the only person I knew was Jack Eves. Okay. Yeah. And I don't remember who the uh, superintendent was. Mr. Pickett, perhaps? Pickett, yes, yes, you're right. Yes, I couldn't think of it. It's been 50 years. You know, I'll have a hard time remembering these things. Let's not go there. <laughs> Let's let everyone think that we're still 17 and 24. Right, yeah. right. Keep that illusion going. You're driving to your new home, Heathsville, right. Virginia. Right. What was your first impressions of living on the Northern Neck? It was much more rural than any place I had lived. I had lived in the same town in North Carolina. It was not a city. It was about 15,000 people. But we had stoplights and movie theaters, which Northumberland County didn't have at that time. And uh, I just thought, well, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> it was it was just it was it was like when I left North Carolina and went to Connecticut, a very upper middle class suburb, junior executive types. And so this was just something different. It was just just like, okay. And you know, you're young and you're you want to do different things and try different things and have different experiences. It was a little weird. I mean, when I first moved there and didn't know anybody, and I remember more than once getting in my car, driving sixty five miles to Richmond, which because you had to go through Tappahannock 
took about 90 minutes to get to Richmond, going to a movie by myself, getting in the car, and driving home because there was no movie theater. And, and the, the closest movie theater was over in Tappahannock, but they didn't show movies that I was interested in seeing, so I never set foot in it. What were some of the struggles that you faced teaching in a well, rural area? Well, initially it was just it was meeting people because school as a teacher is sort of an odd thing. I'm also, I was a single teacher. It was odd because you meet the students, but you don't know the parents. You never really meet the parents and you can't, it's not really appropriate to be friends with your students. At least I didn't think so at the time. As you said, there's that thing about a young teacher is not that much older than the, than the students in 11th and 12th grade. And I just didn't think it was appropriate. And, and it was, I had been dealing with younger students where it was obviously was, would have been inappropriate. So there's just a period there of meeting people. You know, I had this neighbor nearby. And so, I mean, he was the first person I met. And, uh, there were other people, but you don't really meet a lot of people as a young single teacher. And the only people you know really are the other teachers. But I explored Richmond, and uh, I would go into Richmond several times a month, on, usually on Saturday, sometimes Sunday, depending on what I was doing. But I'd go to a movie, go shopping, go to the Virginia Museum, which I enjoyed. They had a professional theater there at that time, things like that. And just explore, explored Richmond, which I had never spent any time in, so it was all new to me. Well, when you came to the Northern Neck, were you aware of the racial divide amongst the people? I was not, but I I imagined. The only thing I knew when I started teaching, I knew that this, the separate and unequal black school system had been shut down in Northumberland County the previous year in 1970, and the schools totally merged together. And so I knew that when I started, that was only the second year of the, of the single school system. I assumed that there had been issues, but I never knew. The only thing I was aware of, besides the, the fact school had only been integrated for a year, was, and I actually got that from somebody in one of my classes, one of the students, made a, a crack one time towards the beginning of the year about how the high school, they had to use the, the old, the white high school as Northumberland High School, even though it was much older and looked ancient <laughs> compared to what had been the black school on the other side of Eastville. Central High School. Was that what it was called? Okay, mm-hmm. see, I didn't even know what it was called. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which was which not very old, as I recall. I mean, it, it opened in the 60s. I don't know when it was built because it, it was there when I got there, but it was, uh, it was a much newer, bigger school. But, of course, I'm sure they never considered making that Northumberland High School. No, they didn't, as <laughs> the Freedom of Choice, which started 68, 69, when okay. you made the decision that you could go to whatever school. It was never a question that the white students were going to go to the black schools. Right, it was right. more black students going to white schools. And as right. you said, they took Central and totally changed the name to Northumberland Junior. Right. That was in my ninth grade. And as you said, Northumberland High School remained Northumberland High School. That was the white school. So, now, I know that there's a new education campus when I was down there. Friends that I stayed with uh, showed it to me. When did that open, the new unified campus outside uh, of Eastville? You talking about since 
2000 and so. I think in 2013, that was our class reunion. Because my understanding that campus has all the county schools now. Yes. The elementary schools, the junior high, and the high school. Yeah, so let's just say that it was like 2010 or 11. Okay, okay. And the, and that's, Well, I knew they'd have to do something about the school where I taught because parts of it, parts of it were very, very old. I mean, it was it was okay. I mean, the roof didn't leak and they heated in the winter, but it was still a very, very old building, let's face it. You know? That just sort of leads into how the priority of not the black community, but the white community, that they would close the black schools, which they did across the board, not only oh, in yeah. North America. Yeah, there was nothing, yeah, that was, there was nothing unique about that at the time. Going back to the racial divide, in the in the schools or in the community one thing about the same time that I was starting to teach in the northern neck my hometown in North Carolina integrated their school system and my mother was part of that as, as she was on the staff as I said at the high school as the guidance counselor they had a lot of issues as you might expect but I thought that Northumberland was fortunate in one way in the sense that the high school was about evenly divided, 50-50, black and white. And I know that in North Carolina, in my hometown, they had to go, they had to sort of invent ways to elect senior superlatives and the class officers and the student council so that they wouldn't end up with, well, basically it would have been all white because it was a majority white school, but they wouldn't end up with an all-white uh representation. Whereas it seemed to me that in Northumberland, it's sort of, you might have a black captain of the football team, but then you had like a white class president, but then you'd have like a black May queen or homecoming queen or whatever. It seemed to me like things were sort of those popularity contests that you do in high school were sort of evenly divided. Now that may not have been your perception, I realize, but that's how it appeared to me. I can remember student elections for class presidents where they would nominate maybe two or three black students and one white student so that the votes will be split amongst the black students so the white students always won and then finally you know it was just okay this is getting silly I'm not saying that didn't happen, but I have no recollection of that. It, oh, yes. it might have happened before I got there. Mm-hmm. I just I don't know. It seemed to me that things were sort of split fairly evenly, black and white, and there, neither group predominated in terms of those, as I said, popularity contests that you have in high school. Yeah. Did you have any teachers or administrators that was helping you to get acclimated to being? Uh, no. No. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but no, no, you're on, you're, you're on your own. The school, it wasn't that big a school, and uh, it was just, you know, you just, it's sort of a, a, a sink or swim. As I said, I, I came home from my trip, I interviewed, I signed the contract, the teachers started a week early, I had to get my stuff down there, move into my cottage, unpack, I didn't have, it was furnished, so I didn't have any furniture, all I had was, you know, my stereo and books and clothes and records and things like that, unpack, come to school every day and find out what I was going to be teaching and what my schedule was going to be, and then take 
the books home and start familiarizing myself because I had been an English major. So even though I, I didn't know those books until I got there, I knew most of what was in them. I had studied in college and so forth. And so then, and then school started. Bingo. One week later, kids show up. You're off and running. I mean, there were. Other, I mean, I did. You know, chat. Uh, there was Mrs. Scott and, and uh, Mr. Jett. I remember who taught English also. And you know, we talked. You know, how teachers, just like kids in the teachers' room, we talked. And you know, after school, things would come up, and and uh, people would would talk about things. But no, basically, it's just okay. You know, here, do it. I'm getting the sense that Northumberland was your first teaching job, correct? No, I had three years in Connecticut in junior high. And you had taught English there also? Yeah, uh, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Obviously, teaching sixth and seventh grade is a lot different from teaching seventh and twelfth grade. Actually, to go back, I left out a chapter. My first teaching job after college, I had a summer job at Phillips Academy in Andover, Phillips Andover Academy, north of Boston. They had a they have a summer session. I think it still still goes uh, for six weeks, and it was for high school students. It was ungraded. I sort of when I described it to people at the time, when it was sort of you know intellectual summer camp and it was a private school one of the top prep schools in the country and the people who came there came from all over the United States in the summertime the students and we lived in the dorms on the campus and used the classrooms and the library and the other the dining hall and all the facilities at the school for six weeks so that was actually my first my very first teaching job after college and I actually went back there uh, two more summers. I was there from 1968, 69, and 7. So and then I had the junior high school job in Connecticut and then the high school job uh, in Northumberland. Which one did you like better? I can't really answer that. It was they were they were all different. I mean, it was fascinating. One of the things that I quickly, as I said, the system in Connecticut was a very affluent suburban community. So I had assumed that when I came to Virginia and rural Virginia, the Northern Neck, that the system would be poorer. I mean, the salary was lower. But what interested me as I got into it and and learned about uh, the school and everything is that the problem in the school were not unlike the problems in Connecticut. The problems with public education and community relationships with their school systems were, were, not, were not that different. The parents in Connecticut were more of a presence in the school system, but that's just because the kind of community it was. The parents were professional, college-educated. The mothers didn't work. The fathers commuted into Manhattan. And so there was a lot of interchange meetings. The parents would come to school. In Northumberland, I mean, it was very rare to have any contact with a parent at all. I mean, I would be hard-pressed uh, to mention any parents. I don't remember anybody coming to school or meeting with me or, or anything like that. But, of course, I mean, that also, the kids. Kids in, in Connecticut that I taught, you know, it was a junior high middle school, uh, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, and, you know, parents are more involved in their children's education when they're younger. By the time they get to high school, most parents are sort of over it and figure the kids can look after themselves unless there's some sort of major problem. So you're teaching in a rural area. What were some of your objectives and how... The students. I guess my objective was to try to give my students a glimpse of the wider world because I saw them as being sort of cut off. As time went on, I realized, ironically, that it was the uh, white students 
who were more cut off because the black students, I discovered, often went off to spend the summer with relatives in Washington or Philadelphia or Baltimore or, or wherever. They got out. They got away. They got exposed. Whereas the the white kids didn't seem to do that. And they, they just spent the summer, you know, there in the northern neck. And they they sort of had no no awareness at all. I, I remember, I don't know if you participated, I don't remember which year it was, but I remember Mrs. Scott decided to take uh, some students, it might have been the Beta Club, I don't remember, uh, to Virginia, uh, to the museum to see one of the theater productions. Jesus then, Christ Superstar? No, that's the one we saw in New York the t- uh, your senior year. Uh, I took <laughs> Mr. Eads said, okay, you're in charge of the class. You're the class sponsor. Now, you have to take him to New York. Because, see, I had lived in Connecticut and had been in and out of New York off and on for three years. And so he put me in charge of raising the money for and planning and then leading the uh, senior class trip. So, yes, I and three other adults took 64 seniors from North Carolina High School to New York. Did you do that? I don't remember. Did you do that? No, I was was an isolationist. (laughs) Okay, but we did. I did take them to see Jesus Christ Superstar. I wanted them to see a Broadway show, and I figured, well, at least Jesus Christ Superstar, they'd all know the story, as it were. <laughs> and so I remember we were sitting in the theater, and one uh, young woman turned around, one of the students, have no idea, and she said, Mr. DePriest, Mr. DePriest. I said, yes. She said, where's the screen? <laughs> and I said, there isn't one. I said, this is a show on the stage with professional actors, and there's an offstage band with live music. And I said, it's going to be a musical about the life of Jesus Christ. We had gotten to the theater. I mean, she didn't understand what she was about to see. She thought it was going to be a movie. Those were the kinds of things that I tried to the best that I could, and obviously it was limited, but to talk about I remember when I had college-bound seniors, Mr. Jett had taught them English literature, and I was the handle of, you know, teaching them about term papers, studying, and all that kind of stuff. And so I had them all, I got the permission from Mr. Eads. The class voted, and we all, they all bought paperback copies of a book called Future Shock. Did you read Future Shock? No, but I heard about you and Future Shock. Yes. <laughs> Well, that was my attempt. That was my attempt to give them a glimpse of what their future might be like. That it was not that their futures were not going to be like what they had experienced up through twelfth grade in the Northern Neck. You know, when you say what was my objective, that was probably my major objective to open their eyes, to wake them up to the fact that the world outside the Northern Neck was changing very rapidly, and that. Nobody knew what it was going to be, but the only thing we knew for certain was it was going to be very, very different. I think some of your students, they talk about Future Shock. I think, Do they? <laughs> yes. I think you you spent a couple of months studying. We did. Oh, we spent the whole semester, you know, because because they were supposed to be writing papers and things, and, and I was supposed to be helping them with their writing and, you know, doing a term paper. You can't just... You can't just write about nothing. You have to have a subject. And Mr. Jett had taught them literature, so I couldn't have them write papers about Shakespeare or Chaucer or whatever the English literature. So that's why I had them buy Future Shock 
It had a series of chapters about different aspects of life, education, medicine, uh, communications, travel, those kinds of things. And we would read a chapter and discuss it in class, and then those would be the things they would, they would write about. And that's what their term paper was about, was about some aspect of the future that they were interested in. You are listening to A Pixie from Kilmarnock with an interview with Tom DePriest, former English teacher for the Northumberland County Public School System and former lawyer. He remains the same, candid, engaging, and possessing a very wicked sense of humor that I get to enjoy. Other than future chop, what is your fondest memory of teaching your classes at... Um, oh, uh... Well, I mean, there's nothing in particular that stands out. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I, I mean, they're always your teacher. They're always kids who talk too much in class and, and, you know, that kind of thing. The students were interesting. I mean, there was an initial period. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. We had to get acquainted, that kind of thing. I gave them a questionnaire the first day, and then I, I went over it. I took, took them up and then went over them anonymously and just took, you know, answers like one of the questions, what's the furthest you've ever been from home? See, that ties in with what I said before about getting them to sort of be aware of the of the wider world, the bigger world. So, you know, what's the furthest place you've ever, you know, been away from home? And, uh, you know, just, just things like that, uh, trying to, to get them to, to broaden their horizons. I was very surprised. I don't think, I can't know for sure, but in retrospect, I don't have any recollection of any student, black or white, applying to the University of Virginia. And to me, that was shocking. And I realized eventually that they, it was just, it was out there. They knew it was there, but they didn't know it firsthand. Uh, William and Mary, they knew about that. That was just down in Williamsburg. VCU in, in Richmond, they knew that was there. They, they could go see the campus if they wanted to. Mary Washington up in, in uh Fredericksburg, same thing. But UVA, UVA might have uh, might as well have been Harvard. You know, people just didn't think of it as a place that they could go to or apply to. I wonder why that was. I mean, the guidance counselors, if I remember correctly, they sort of divided the kids into categories: those who were college bound, those who probably just work at a trade. And those right. who were, God help you. <laughs> okay, well, I, I was not familiar with that terminology for that last category. Well, that's one of my own making. <laughs> well, I mean, there were there were some there were some very sad cases. I mean, let's face it: you had people who came from homes, uh, you know, that were not stable. You know, I remember one day one of the students came in, Mr. DePriest, Mr. DePriest, yes. Guess what we learned in, in math class today? And I was like, oh, I don't know. What did you learn? We learned how to write a check. Well, my first reaction, I didn't say anything. I just said, oh, well, that's good or that's interesting. Well, I remember watching my mother write checks when I was like six, seven, eight years old because we had a mortgage. My, my parents had a mortgage on the house that we had built and lived in. And then I thought, and I thought, well, these kids, some of them, 
They're living in a rental property, and they've never seen a check. Their families don't write checks, probably don't even have bank accounts. There was that gap there. And, I mean, it's, it's hard when you're teaching, by definition, a class. The class has got to be more or less sort of doing the same thing. I mean, you try to individualize instruction to the extent you can, but you don't have time as a teacher in a public school to deal individually every day full-time with every student. You just can't do it. My recollection is we have six periods, and you have, as a teacher, you have one off period. So you have five classes a day, and each class was, the classes weren't particularly big at at Northumberland. I think there were like 20, 25 kids in a class, roughly. So you're talking about 125 kids a day. I mean, you can't, you really can't even say one sentence individually to each kid. You have to deal with the class. As I said, you know, you realize that there's a wide range across the different classes of expectations, and getting some of the students to read was very difficult. And again, I realized they came from homes where the families didn't read, didn't have a newspaper, probably didn't have magazines. It was hard, particularly teaching, uh, teaching English, trying to teach Chaucer and Shakespeare to people who don't have a lot of reading skills. It's complicated. Probably a lot of kids, black and white, were overlooked because of those very conditions that you're saying. Right, and right. I mean, well, that's what you're getting into the to the social socioeconomics, the economic conditions, and, you know, all of that. Yeah, exactly. You knew when you were teaching that some of those kids were never going to leave the Northern Neck, never going to leave Northumberland County, and as you said, they would end up working there in the crab houses or on the farms, and that was, that was all they could expect. But at the same time, you had kids who were going to go to school and were going to become professional doctors, lawyers. I'm hoping, though, that some of the division that was caused was because some of the guidance counselors, teachers, etc., they knew the parents of, and they just steered the kids. You were given your subjects, what subjects you were going to take. You didn't get the chance to course out your own future. That oh, was no. That was no. left up to no. the guidance counselor. And that's where I think a lot of people were cheated because people made assumptions that because maybe your parents didn't have a lot of money, maybe right. weren't as educated, but that did not mean that they weren't trying to make sure that their child or their children had advantages, such as learning Shakespeare or right. seeing a play, or that they could become a doctor or a lawyer, even though their mom and dad was working on a farm or right. in the crab houses. I think right. that's across the board, not just only black kids, but the white kids. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 without question. Well, I mean, um, in my own family, you know, my when I was growing up, my father had a high school education. He didn't go to college. Now, my mother did because, as I said, she was a biology teacher and then became a guidance counselor. So she, she had a college degree, but my father did. And I ended up becoming a lawyer. I mean, I, I, I was one of those people. I can't say I was the first in my family to go to college because my mother had gone to college. But uh, it was just, as I said, the difficulty was trying to bridge that gap in the context of a class and a textbook where you had to do Chaucer, you had to do Shakespeare, you had to do the 
Nathaniel Hawthorne. You know, you, there there were certain authors in 11th grade and 12th grade, the American authors, the English authors, that you had to cover. That was what the class was. And yet some of the students had no concept of of any of that. I mean, how you know the, how to deal with it, how to absorb the information that you were talking about. And yet in that list of required reading, there wasn't a mention of any black authors or black oh, no. literature. Oh, no, no. No, I mean it didn't. It didn't. It didn't exist. There was no, nobody. The Supreme Court, 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. Well, look, I mean that was 1954. They didn't integrate the schools in Northumberland County until 1970. You know, com- you know do away with the, the the separate and unequal black school system. The first goal was to get the students together, and then it was only. With the 60s and everything that happened in the 60s, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, the rioting in the street, the uh, riots at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. It wasn't until those things started to happen that anybody even thought about, oh, well, should we do something about the curriculum? Do we need to have black authors in the, in the literature books in school? Do we need to have more women? Not only, you probably don't remember, but I mean, your literature book, I mean, Emily Dickinson is the only, oh, and Phyllis Wheatley, who actually was a uh, was uh, an enslaved worker uh, in a household in Boston in the 18th century and wrote poetry. But offhand, I mean, and then there were some English novelists in the 19th century that we taught in 12th grade excerpts who wrote under pen names, under men's, men's pen names. George Eliot uh, was, was actually a woman, I mean, but she knew that if she wrote it. And the Bronte sisters, all of their novels came out under men's names originally. So, I mean, it, it, I mean, there was no black literature, but there was no representation of women in the textbooks at that time at all. To experience another world without leaving your own space is freedom. Characters that challenge, plots that are so intriguing you can't wait to turn the page. This is what literature meant to two good friends traveling to learn. The Music by Robert A. Hall This interview is dedicated in memory of Odell Scott, my very good friend. Thank you for listening.